If you watched the Super Bowl recently, you may have seen an ad or two in the series called He Gets Us. Now, I'm not going to give commentary on the organization that produced that, but I will say this, that part of what they presented was correct. The fact of Jesus' humanity, the fact that in his humanity, he gets us. But it's incomplete. Jesus doesn't just get us. And if you watch that commercial and think about that, that's where people are kind of left. Okay, great. That's, that's great. He gets me. He gets my problems, whatever. And in his full humanity, he does. But, you know, since the Super Bowl, uh, another group of very creative uh, Christian uh, video folks put together a compliment to that that we saw in the Super Bowl. If we had the time, I would show that to you. Actually, if you want to see it, I, catch me in the lobby and I'll give you the link. You can watch it. It's really, really well done. But it makes the, the complimentary point and the better point about Jesus goes beyond just getting us. Let me just give you very quickly the essence of what they say in, in very kind of hard-hitting, very creative with a musical background they go on to talk about he not only gets us, but Jesus saves us. He transforms us. He cleanses us. He restores us. He forgives us. He heals us. He delivers us. He redeems us. Yes, he loves us. And today's passage is going to illustrate why that's possible and how that happens. So Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, we're going to take a little bit deeper dive into that. But just before we do, I want you to thumb back a page or scroll back a chapter to chapter 21. I want to remind us that today, in the passage we're going to look at today, this is going to close out a section. Let me set the scene for us here. What's happening in the chapter we're looking at today, and for the actually since we started in January, January 7th was, was a sermon on Matthew 21-23, for these last several weeks, all of this has been happening on one day, actually within an hour or two on one day, probably Wednesday of what we call Passion Week. Jesus will be crucified in a couple days. This is all happening in Jerusalem, today's passage in the temple. But notice in Matthew 21, 23, this is where the whole section started. When he entered the temple, that is Jesus, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? For the last several weeks, that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the authority that Jesus has to say and to do what he's been saying and what he's been doing. Now, if you remember, Jesus initially refused to answer that question. But then he proceeded to answer the question, and he did it very creatively. He told some parables. They countered with some additional questions. And in that Q&A and in that exchange and in the parables, Jesus literally is answering the question. And today, it brings us to a kind of a culmination where he's going to really zero in on on what they're asking. So throughout the last several weeks, we've been looking at passages where the Jewish religious leaders are persisting in their attempts 
literally to trap Jesus. They want to trap him in his words, asking questions, some obscure, some very obvious, about the law. Remember last week, we were together, a combined worship gathering across the street. Pastor Scott talked about the passage right before this. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave him a double dose in his answer, right? Not only love the Lord your God, but also love your neighbor as yourself. Those, are, those two are the, are the most important, according to Jesus. Well, now, today, in verse 41, Jesus is going to turn the tables on his accusers, on his questioners. He has evaded all of their traps. And now he's going he's to ask a question. And it's, the question is based largely on their prior refusal to recognize him for who he is claiming to be. Now, actually, as we, as we look at this in detail, we'll notice it's not just one question. It's actually four questions. So we're going to hang the message on those four questions this morning. And these questions are not just for the Jewish religious leaders. The questions don't just stay on the page of our Bibles. These questions are applicable to us as well. 21st century sitting right here, February 25th, lost count of the date there. Uh, These questions are for us as well. And the answers, like Scott said last week, it, this is not a check the correct box on a religion 101 quiz. The answers are much deeper than that. There's a definite progression in how Jesus is handling his, his, uh, those who are accusing him and questioning him. From the parables through the Q&A and now these four questions. There is a progression and we're coming up to the climax here, the culmination. Here's a big idea. There's probably several, depending on how often you visit the passage, but here's, here's one that I think we can sink our teeth into. Jesus asks four questions that reveal his authority, which is rooted in his identity. Let me repeat that. Jesus asks four questions to reveal that his authority is, in fact, rooted in in his identity. Jesus has the authority to say, has the authority to do what he's been saying and what he's been doing because of who he is, okay? Not because of his training, not because of the rabbinical school he went to. No, it's inherent in his nature because of who he is. So his purpose here is not to win a debate, but rather he wants to elicit um, from them, the religious leaders, The fact that the scriptures actually teach very distinctly about who the Messiah is and what what the Messiah should be about. Thus, helping those leaders as well as the crowd around them, and especially his disciples who are close by, to recognize who he really is. So here's the bottom line. For those of you that are type A, just give me the bottom line, Tim. (laughs) The bottom line... This will reach a climax or a necessary conclusion here that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is God. Jesus is, in fact, who he has been claiming to be. That's where we're going to end up. Now, for the analyticals in the room, like me, I'm going to give you a lot more details that lead up to that. But bottom line, that's where we're headed. Look at verses 41 and 42. Matthew 22, 41 and 42. 
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Let me just stop right there. I read that with my own inflection. He may have said it differently. You might be thinking it differently. What do you think about the Christ? Whatever. It's, it's a very perceptive question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, the son of David. Now, I want you to notice before we get into this, these two verses that now while the Pharisees were gathered together, this is something that they have deliberately planned on. This isn't a chance encounter. The very language of the text itself indicates that. They weren't just passing through the temple grounds and happened to bump into Jesus. No, this was planned, this was plotted, they're there, and so they've been going through this back and forth for, for an hour or more. Jesus' first question at first glance is fairly general, right? It's very theological. But this is a loaded question. And I'm not sure the Pharisees understand that quite yet. The term Christ is the Greek word for the Old Testament word Messiah. And so I'm going to use those terms interchangeably because they mean the same thing. The anointed one. That, that person anointed to be the king over, over Israel. This is the long-expected king. The Pharisees would have been waiting for this king of Israel who would come and would fulfill all of those Old Testament promises, and they'd bring back Israel to its, its true identity, right, as God's chosen people. And they would therefore rule the people of the world. That, that, that's where they were right on, on point with that. And so Jesus is starting right where they're at. The Pharisees, however, believed differently than what Jesus is about to present. In fact, the sect of the Pharisees, which started a couple hundred years before Jesus arrives on the scene, they, you know, during that period of relative silence, the 400 years between the old, end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament, the Pharisees were, were split on who is this person. Some believed that he would be simply a great political and military leader kind of in the line of King David. Others said, well, no, he's much more than that. In fact, he, he might even be divine. We're not quite sure. And so they had this running debate even amongst themselves about whether or not Messiah was God or just a human being, kind of a warrior king. They did, however, believe that the Messiah would be a righteous man. And they defined righteous man by the, your ability to follow all the intricacies of the law. That's why they asked all the questions they've, they've been asking him. The Messiah would obey the Mosaic law perfectly in their mind. And therefore, he and Israel would become a light again to the nations. So in other words, they fell right in line with that Super Bowl commercial. He gets us. He's going to show up. He gets our problems. And he's going to deal with them for us. This question that Jesus is asking is a deep theological question, no doubt. But I want you to see that it's also a deeply personal question. It's a personal question about his identity. And it's a personal question in that he's asking these leaders, 
do you really believe in my identity as I've been presenting it to you? And so that begs the question, well, how about us? Where do we, where do we stand or where do we sit in regards to that question? How would we answer Jesus' question? <clears throat> Earlier this week in, in our uh, preaching meeting, Taylor, who's preaching this message at our Oregon City Church plant, um, suggested that we might view the question from different perspectives in our culture, right? So if, if we're a politically-minded person, we might look to a Messiah figure as someone who would legislate morality and protect the disenfranchised. If we're of a military background or maybe even serving in the military now, we would expect uh, that Messiah would be someone who would come and would wipe out our enemies and save our nation. If we're teachers, I'm guessing there's some teachers in the room, there were in the first hour. If we're teachers, we may look for someone who would lead people into a, a higher state of enlightenment. If we're environmentalists, we live in the Pacific Northwest. After all, we may desire someone who would preserve the earth for future generations, right? We all have different perspectives on this. If we're a scientist, we might, we might really desire that someone would show up and would unlock the genome so that all cancers can be eradicated. How we answer Jesus' question is really dependent on what we perceive we need, what our interests are. In other words, to answer the question, what do you think about the Christ, we must consider the, the nature of our issues, our problems, our hang-ups, and then consider the nature of the person, the only person who can solve that problem. So, the identity of the Christ, the identity of Messiah, will reveal to us both our, our greatest problem, but also the only possible solution. The identity of Christ is of the utmost importance. Seriously, if you've not heard anything I've said so far, and if you intend to tune me out for the remainder of our time together, don't miss this. The true identity of Christ is of utmost importance importance. If we get this wrong, which the he gets us commercial does, and which the Pharisees did, or if we only get it partially right, then our problems are not solved. So we need to get this right. We need to understand the true identity of the Christ, and that's what Jesus is going to help us with this morning. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't ask them questions about taxes like they just did of him. He doesn't ask them about who's going to be married to whom in the resurrection. Those are interesting questions, but he gets to a much deeper question. He gets to the real issue, the issue of identity. And you know as well as I do that identity is under assault. It's under attack in our culture, not just in, a, in our country, but around the world. Specifically, Jesus is saying, Am I the person who I claim to be? Am I truly who I say I am? Notice, he doesn't wait for their answer. He, doesn't, he, he quickly moves on to the second question. Well, whose son is he? So what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, where did he come from? What are his origins? And the Pharisees gave an expected reply. It was a correct reply. It was the accepted reply, the son of David. 
And they're basing this on multiple passages in their Bible, in the Old Testament. But again, Jesus is asking a much deeper question here. We're going to see, as we walk through these four questions, the Pharisees don't quite get it yet, but I think Jesus is fishing, and he's casting a bait out here to see if they're going to take it. And in just a few minutes, you're going to hear them gulp. It's between the lines. It's not in the ESV translation, but nevertheless, it's there. Because Jesus is asking a question that has a couple levels of meaning. They give the safe, uh, theological, simple, straightforward answer, son of David. That comes right out of 2 Samuel 7. But again, Jesus is, is fishing for something much deeper than a correct theological answer. He is asking a personal question about his identity. Is Jesus, in fact, this son of David that Scripture has talked about? You know, just a few days earlier when he came into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday, the crowd gloriously and joyously cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they referred to him as son of David, right? They knew the answer too, or did they? Jesus is now going to lead them to, a, to, to this place where they do not want to go. Their answer is correct, but their answer is incomplete. It's inadequate. Even by Old Testament standards, even by the standards of their Bible, and Jesus is about to demonstrate that. So again, it, that begs the question, what say you? Right? What, what's your reply to that question? If we were in a classroom right now, I'd, I'd give you an opportunity to speak up and do that. But I'm behind a pulpit. You're not supposed to do that in sermons, I guess, right? But I want you to think about that. How do I answer that question? Look at verses 43 and 44. Let's follow along here. It's a, the drama is building. He said to them, Third question, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Look at that again. How is it that David then calls him Lord? They're, they're beginning to <clears throat> clear their throat. They're about to gulp here. And then he quotes in verse 44 a verse out of Psalm 110 that I've already read. We'll read it again in a minute. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So let's break this down a little bit. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a gift. The text of Scripture is a gift, and we get to unwrap it on a Sunday morning. So let's do that. Interestingly, a couple of Sundays ago when Jesus answered a question from the Sadducees, do you remember the question about marriage and about the kingdom and and who's going to be married to whom, and so forth. Jesus answered their question out of their scriptures. Pastor Scott made it abundantly clear that they had a five-book Bible. They only believed in the first five books of our Old Testament. And so Jesus answered their question from that. Today, however, the Pharisees, who embrace all of what we call the Old Testament, all 39 books, so Jesus is going to base his argument on that. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to pluck a verse right out of the center of their Bible. The book of Psalms, Psalm 110, specifically verse 1, from their greatest king. Psalm 110, one again, reads, 
the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, you may look at that on the screen and you may think, Lord, Lord, I don't don't quite get it. Okay, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Look at your Bibles again. Your Bible may give you a clue. Some of your Bibles may have that first Lord written in small caps, but all caps. Does it do that? Like a capital L, but then a capital O-R-D, a little bit smaller. If so, it's because that word is actually the Old Testament word, Yahweh. It's the term that God gave to himself. It's the the name for the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. The Lord, or Yahweh, says to my, says to David, to David's Lord, and it's a different word. It's not Yahweh anymore. It's the Old Testament word Adonai, which simply could be translated master. So Yahweh says to David's master, and then this great statement about sitting at my right hand. In other words, King David here is claiming that the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, is speaking, and he's speaking to David's master, Adonai, his Lord, the Messiah. And he does so in the Spirit. He does so by inspiration of God's Spirit. This is a wonderful psalm. In fact, so wonderful. And, and I think because of the fact that Jesus uses the psalm here to unpack this, this very, very important uh, point about his identity, this psalm is the most frequently quoted psalm in the, uh, from the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. It's quoted more than any other chapter in the Old Testament. It's quoted, for example, verse 1 alone is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. Verse 4 is quoted another five times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Peter's first sermon right after Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Paul quotes this passage in, in Romans in his letter to the Ephesians, his letter to the Colossians. It shows up in the book of Hebrews ten times and even in the book of Revelation. In other words, Psalm 110 is a very strategic psalm, and I think largely because of how Jesus uses it here and makes his point. Jesus is illustrating from the scriptures that the Pharisees did not have a high enough view. They had an insufficient view of who the Messiah truly was. You see, they were looking for a a, a human nationalistic liberator. Half of the the Pharisees were were saying, no, it's it's just going to be a human, kind of like a warrior king, kind of like David. Others said, well, maybe he might have a a smattering, a a, a little bit of glimpse of of divinity. We're not sure, right? Jesus is directing their attention to their scriptures to explore deeper what the scripture says about the the nature of Messiahship. In Psalm 110, King David is pointing to the divinity of the Messiah. The Messiah and Yahweh are one God. He's not just the son of David. He he is that, but not just that. He is the son of God. He is, in fact, David's Lord. Now, I want to just pause for a second before we move on to to the remaining verses. I just want to pause and make this point because it's, it's very instructive for how Jesus 
approaches questions that come his way and how he teaches. He says in verse 43 that David is making this claim in the Spirit. In other words, this is not human opinion. This is God's Word through the inspiration of God's Spirit through David. So Jesus is reminding his audience that King David speaks with by and with divine inspiration. So he's indicating that David's words are authoritative because they're God's words. They're not just David's words. So I, I, wanna, I want you to notice the, the role or the place of Scripture in Jesus' teaching. Just in the two chapters that we've been focusing on since the beginning of this calendar year, chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus says to his uh, his adversaries, he says, have you never read in the scriptures? He, he directs their attention back to the scriptures. And then in today's chapter, earlier verse, verse 29, Jesus answered the religious leaders with, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. These are religious leaders who prided themselves on knowing God's word, but they didn't. Verse 31, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then last week, we focused on verse 40, and Jesus says the two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when Jesus says that David made these claims in the Spirit, he's once again referencing Scripture. Scripture, right here, what we have in our laps, what we have right in front of us, Scripture is what instructs us to understand the true identity of Jesus. And Jesus models that for us, even as he's in the midst of teaching it to us. Now look at verse 44. The substance of this quote from Psalm 110 is, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This idea of sitting at the right hand of God that's the place of highest honor. That's the place of sovereignty and power. The seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father is, in fact, the primary way that the New Testament testifies to the deity of Messiah. In the New Testament, this position of Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, Father. This isn't just a, it's gonna happen in the future, kind of a one day in the future reign and rule of Jesus. I mean, it is that, but it's much more than that. It's now. It's Jesus' present rule as well. It's the here and also the then, the not yet. It's a, it's a focus though on Jesus is actively sitting now at this moment. Now for him, He's outside our time and space domain, but in this moment of ours, Jesus is reigning. Jesus is ruling. When he ascended 40 days after his resurrection, when he ascended to heaven, he ascended to this position of authority and power. His rule is now, and he's there ruling now on our behalf by his word and by his spirit. So again, this jumps right off the page, right, and into our everyday life. And it begs the question, so how are we going to respond to that? What does the, the present heavenly rule of Jesus mean for us now? 
Well, I'm going to make a couple suggestions here, right? One is, then let's desire his reign in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Let's desire his reign in our world, which is, which is broken and lost and struggling. At the same time, let's yearn for that future glory that we'll be a part of. But right now, his present rule is real, and it means it, it brings comfort. He's there interceding. He's advocating on our behalf. He's reigning for our benefit. Let me give you an axiom. I was going to suggest that you could tweet this, but Twitter doesn't exist anymore. So it's not tweetable, it's axable. Exable. Exable. An axiom. Those who most long and glory in the reign of Christ find the most comfort in life's difficulties. Think about that. I have a friend. She just discovered two days ago that her, in her words, her body is riddled with lesions that are cancerous. I talked to her on the phone yesterday, hoping to minister to her, be a blessing to her, and the opposite was true. Because she is so locked in on the present rule and reign of Jesus now. And she has a hope for her future then. She's so locked in on that that she is just rejoicing in her present suffering. I was blown away. Look at verse 45. Here's the fourth question. Get ready for the gulp. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Seriously, at this point, these guys are uncomfortable. They have to be. And I, th I think they're looking at each other like going, oops, we really shouldn't have let him start this whole conversation. And they, when they so glibly answered David's son, they didn't realize what Jesus was going to do with that. Notice uh, there it says, if then. There's no doubt here with the if. It's really better translated since. Since then, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Jesus now draws attention to the fact that David calls the Messiah, Yahweh, Lord. And he's, in doing so, he is, he is conceding his own inferiority to the Messiah, King David, no less. Now, Jesus' question here is, is not a denial of the fact that Messiah is, in fact, a son of David. But it's more than that. It's a demand for recognizing how Scripture itself teaches that Messiah is more than that. He's more than David's son. Messiah is younger in age than David, but he's superior in rank to David. Now, these aren't trick questions. Jesus is not trying to trap them. Rather, he's trying to show them that there's clear truth embedded in God's word about his identity. If David calls Messiah his God, then how is Messiah David's son? If Messiah is God, then how is he a man? Specifically a man in David's human lineage. How, how does that happen? 
The only answer to that is something we celebrated a couple months ago, the incarnation. That's the only answer. The eternal Son of God had to come to earth as a human being, born into the family of David. As eternal God, the book of Revelation says, Jesus is the root of David, or the originator of David. But at the same time, Revelation also says, as a man, he is the offspring of David. There's this synthesis, this this tension that Jesus is making abundantly clear now to them. And had the Pharisees honestly faced the truth of what Jesus was saying, then they would have had to confess that he was indeed the Son of God, come in the flesh. But they refused to do so. How about us? How about us? Jesus is synthesizing this concept of a human Messiah in David's line, but with the concept that Messiah is actually divine, who transcends the human being. I remember a, uh, one particular Sunday in the early 1980s, Debbie and I were living in Mississippi, and uh, at the time, I was on the faculty at uh, Belhaven College, which is now Belhaven University. It's a historic Presbyterian. You've got to understand, I'm, a, I'm a, a fundamentalistic Baptist who grew up in Southern California, okay? So I'm, I'm there teaching at a Presbyterian college, and as that, was part, I was part of a speaking team. Every other week or so, two or three other guys and I would, would fan out across the state and would have opportunities to preach in Presbyterian churches. Now, I'm about 28, 29 years old at the time, still wet behind the ears, and I don't know which end is up. And I find myself in the pulpit, this massive structure at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, excuse me, Vicksburg, Mississippi. I'm talking historic. The building I was in was beautiful stone structure. It was actually uh, the rebuilt sanctuary because the wooden structure a, a couple streets away had been uh, obliterated during the Battle of Vicksburg. In fact, they still had a cannonball that had been unleashed from a, a Union ship. Um, so over, up on the banks, overlooking the Mississippi River, I'm in this pulpit. Uh, our kid, two of our three kids were, were born by that time, but very, very young. I come walking out from behind the platform in a full black robe, head, you know, I mean, from shoulders down to the, to the floor. Debbie about lost it. And, and I'm, I'm, I find myself in this, in this beautiful pulpit, and I'm leading worship as well as preaching. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm from a Baptist background. We don't do this. And all of a sudden, the congregation stands up, and they begin to say this. Words from the second century. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen? Amen. Anybody know what that is or what that was? It's called the Apostles' Creed. 
the Apostles' Creed wonderful. I, I didn't, I had never done that. I never said that. And I'm up front mouthing things that I didn't really understand. But you know what? That captured my attention. And I since have made it a point to study some of these wonderful creeds. Now, we come from a tradition that's not really creedal, confessional creedal. But I think there's value here. Listen to just a few lines from the Nicene Creed written originally in AD 325. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Now listen to this. God from God, light from life, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. It's wonderful truths packed into these creeds. Uh, in the interest of time, I, I won't read uh, selections from the Chalcedonian Creed, which is, even, which is even more specific. It was written as a counter to those who were claiming that Jesus was not divine. Uh, amazing, amazing uh, truths here uh, that are found in God's Word, but that are often spoken in order uh, to make, make the point of who Jesus truly is. But this goes far beyond that even. It goes far beyond creeds. It's go, it goes far beyond understanding about who Jesus is, about where he came from. But it goes to this question here. And it's a question for all of us to ponder. Will we acknowledge him as Lord, as David did? Look at verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, we know from chapter 26 that the next time they ask him a question, he's he's at trial. He's in the home of the high priest, and Caiaphas adjures him by the living God and says, tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God, and Jesus finally breaks his silence and says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew Henry, who, uh, 17th century pastor from uh, from Wales and wonderful commentator, wrote about verse 46. He said, you know, many are convinced by this word, by the word of Jesus, yet they're not converted. Had these been converted, they would have asked him more questions, especially the great question, what must we do to be saved? That should have been the question they asked. What must we do in order to be saved? Many conclusions can be drawn from this. Let me just glean a few that I want to share. Based on on Jesus' demonstration here in this passage of his unparalleled authority, his unique relationship with the Father, the fulfillment of Israel's longings through the prophecies, we must conclude that Jesus had a higher understanding of himself that goes beyond what we might think. The world thinks, well, yeah, Jesus was a teacher. He was a great human teacher. Maybe he was even a prophet. 
Human categories are not big enough to contain the identity and the mission of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is God's equal. He is God incarnate. And he has inaugurated the kingdom of God in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. In fact, throughout the gospel according to Matthew, we have seen that Jesus has made it abundantly clear. He has said over and over again, I am God and I am the human son of David. I am the Messiah, so follow me. Devote yourself to me for the rest of your life. Treasure me above all things, and your sins will be forgiven, and your life will have full meaning, and you'll live forever in the joy of God's presence. The question left, right, is will we hold him as our greatest treasure, or will we just catalog that information about his identity? And my prayer is that your answer, my answer, will daily be an answer of yes. It may sound like I've just concluded, but I haven't. I want to make a couple of, draw a couple of implications from today's passage for our church, for New Life Church. Our understanding of Jesus' identity in this passage is one that we actually share with Jesus himself. It's his self-identity. So the trustworthiness of the, and the authenticity of Jesus' self-claimed divinity and authority and messianic identi- identity is verified in Scripture, which means that the basis of what we practice here, the basis of our faith here at New Life Church, is secure. It's secure in the claims and actions of Jesus. After all, he is the cornerstone of this church, Right? And so our faith is found and our faith is secure in him. A second implication, though, is, okay, then let's take his word seriously. Let's take his actions seriously. If God's trustworthy scripture proves that Jesus was fully aware of his own identity and his mission on earth as the Son of God who bears in himself the source of eternal life, then we must return again and again and again to God's precious word, to his words, pondering, considering, digesting his words. As one commentator says, metabolizing the truth of Scripture into every cell of our being. The words of Jesus are more than just good advice or (laughs) behavior modification. No, these are words of salvation for lost souls and a struggling world, and a dying humanity. And it gives us an eternal hope for what God has, in plan, has planned for us by his grace. So I urge you, I urge you, accept, believe, trust in the identity of Jesus. You can only do that through the power of his spirit. And as you do, then yield control of your life to his lordship. And if you already have, and I recognize that many of you already have, then act like it, right? And I have a mirror here in front of me as I say that. If I've already accepted that reality, then live like it, act like it, follow daily in the footsteps of 
of our Savior, our Lord, our King, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge more than that, we believe. We believe you are both Lord, that is Yahweh, our God, as well as Lord, our Master. And we do this in the power of your Spirit. Would you help us to trust you more today as our Master, our King, our God. Amen.